The Technology Modernization Fund, known as the TMF, has been doling out money to agencies for special projects since 2018. The first cohort of the projects were supposed to show they'd be able to produce enough savings to pay back the TMF, but will they? It's doubtful in many cases. We get more now from the Acting Director for Information Technology and Cybersecurity at the Government Accountability Office, Dave Hinchman. He talked with Tom Temin. Your report looks at kind of the first blob of money that went out. Just give us a sense of how many projects you looked at and what was the total handout from the TMF for them. Sure. So the law requires us to review every award that's being made to agencies. And so our second report, which was issued in December of 2021, not only rehashed the first seven awards, but then an additional four. So we've now looked at 11 of the 23 awards that have been made. The 11 awards total somewhere roughly $75 million. And in the awards since then, after August of 2021, it's a lot more money too, right? Yes, they've made an additional 12 awards starting in September of 2021, and those awards total somewhere about $330 million. There is one classified award in that pile, and we don't know how much that award was for or what the award was. That could have been a billion for, for all we know. All right, then let's talk about the ones that you have studied, those first 11. And they came under the regime where it was clear that the payback mechanism was part of it. What did you find? So first thing we did was we looked at the cost estimates that the agencies were required to provide as part of their award package. We used our cost estimating best practices the GAO has, and in doing that, we found that of those first 11 awards, 10 of them were not considered reliable based on important information that was missing from the uh, cost estimate. And then looking further into that, we found that their cost savings projections have changed dramatically in some cases to the point where the majority of them have not realized cost savings at this point. Right. This is a kind of a classic problem with information technology. Is this type of stuff even measurable? That's an excellent question. And I think in fairness, projects change, especially IT projects. However, I think what we view is the important baseline that should be there, which is the cost estimates that's provided, should really provide a roadmap for what the project hopes to do. And while there may be deviations, I think that we're seeing such significant changes to these projects post-award gives us a little bit of pause. And we're wondering if really the right questions are being asked to agencies when they apply for these funds. Got it. So it's maybe a lack of knowledge or sophistication on the part of the awarding board there that is looking at the applications and deciding who gets the money. That's certainly a possibility. We haven't done the audit work to support that. Um, I know that there's, I think that's a reasonable conversation to have. But I also think that, you know, going back to some of our main recommendations, which is that GSA needs to provide explicit instructions to agencies for doing their cost estimates. If you have a solid cost estimate, you really shouldn't be running into problems down the road like these agencies have. And of the 11, you said 10 did not have reliable cost estimates. Which one did have cost estimates that were reliable? Customs and Border Protection had an award for a module in their automated commercial environment, which is a system that manages cargo coming across the border. They were found to have a reliable estimate. And they had one of the biggest awards, or the biggest, in that tranche of $15 million. Yes, $15 million. So one of the larger awards. And that automated commercial environment, that is a very venerable system. I mean, some form of it goes back, I think, to the 1980s. Yes, it's a very mature product, very mature technology. The program has been around a long time. I did audits that involved that program 15 years ago. So it's been around. 
So maybe they have a good basis for estimating what their costs are. Well, I think certainly a mature project who is in good standing, it's been established, it's been operating, and when you're doing a small module, I think it was their collections module is something that they were adding, there's certainly a good chance that the planning they're going to have in place are going to help them with their cost estimate and understanding what they want to do and how much it's going to cost. We're speaking with Dave Hinchman. He's Acting Director for Information Technology and Cybersecurity at the Government Accountability Office. So what were your recommendations, especially as this TMF idea is heating up? Because as you mentioned, the next group to date is another $330 million out there. So I think the two recommendations that are most important are that Agents, both OMB and GSA, need to issue more explicit cost-estimating guidance for agencies. OMB has countered that agencies have provided some instruction in the application package, but obviously the message isn't getting through or that that's not clear enough. And we think that it is worth it to provide explicit guidance for what agencies need to do. And that becomes even more important considering the scope and scale of the awards that are being made now. And would you say then that the GSA and Congress, really, and the OMB should retain the payback requirement? Because there's some debate as to whether the next bunch of awards will even have that, simply because the idea is agencies need to modernize so badly, never mind if they can pay it back. Well, I think that it's certainly part of the discussion. You know, when you look at a large award that's being made, for instance, General Services got $187 million for their login.gov project. You know, the risk that an agency does not have a good plan in place increases, and with the possibility that an agency is only doing a partial or minimal repayment of its award, as the TMF now allows, that certainly increases the risk, which is why we encourage all of the stakeholders in the TMF award decision process to make sure that they're doing everything they need to do to provide the scrutiny of these awards, uh, ensure that consumers and customers and citizens are getting the best value on this investment. Otherwise, it's just a backdoor increase in the IT budget for everything else they're doing. That's certainly a risk, and I know I've heard that argument before. I think one of the frustrations in the federal IT space is that the standard budget process is not IT's friend. You know, in a two-year cycle, your IT needs can change immeasurably. And TMF and is, you know, I think one option pr- for providing a way to quickly respond to emergent needs, especially with cybersecurity, if you realize you have a vulnerability. And so I think it's, you know, GEO, and we've testified about this and written about this, the, the TMF is a great option for agencies, but we just want to make sure that it's being run and operated as most efficiently as possible and is making good decisions with where the money goes. And what was the reaction of GSA or anybody else to the latest findings? They respectfully disagree. Uh, They still feel that the guidance that they've offered to agencies is enough. I do believe that they recognize there's the potential for improved guidance in providing to agencies. I testified with the executive director of the TMF program office last week, and I think that there's broad recognition both among Congress as well as the stakeholders and us in the oversight position that there's always room to improve stuff. And I feel confident moving forward that that we'll find ways to do that. And it's also fair to say that with the money that has been spent, agencies, regardless of whether they can pay it back, have made tangible improvements in their technology. 
Absolutely. You know, especially in the area of cybersecurity, it's, you know, it's no longer will we be a victim of cybersecurity, it's when will someone attack us. And this provides an opportunity for agencies to address fairly broad-based efforts, for instance, uh, zero-trust architecture uh, is, I think, the subject of either three or four of the most recent awards. And I think that's the kind of thing where you won't necessarily see tangible results down the road because you're not being attacked. You know, the cost of a data breach or a, a malicious attack can be significant, but if that doesn't happen, it's more of a cost avoidance, you know, or an intangible savings. But I do think that there are definite advantages that agencies will realize from these awards. Dave Hinchman is Acting Director for Information Technology and Cybersecurity at the Government Accountability Office. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. and, and, And he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And And I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that that what we say and do especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that 
that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. 
First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.